Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast, where we're talking all things resilience and revolution. I'm Andre. And I'm Trishes. And we are your hosts. And today we're joined by a very special guest, Anne Spetkovich is with us. Anne is currently a professor in the Feminist Institute of Social Transformation and the author of Depression, A Public Feeling. And we're so glad to have you, Anne. Thanks for joining us. Excited to be here. Wonderful. Why don't we just jump into the the book and the larger conversation around the book? I, I'll tell everyone listening, this was really personal for me. Like I knew that I wanted to have you on the on our show because um I've been talking about the connection between systemic racism and my mental health for many years, even though I didn't know I was always doing that. And so one day I was like, there has to be some literature at this intersection of just social justice or systemic whatever and personal affect. And your book was the first book that came up in Amazon. It was actually kind of the only title that I could find at that intersection for a while. I think the algorithm had to get had to learn that I actually want more more literature around this. And so the title alone was just very provocative to me, depression, a public feeling. And so I wondered if you could talk about where that language comes from and a bit of um, what the book is as a project. Sure. Um, I'm glad you found your way to it. And even that Amazon would have taken you there. Uh, And and you're right that we're still in need of Uh, all kinds of literature that would address the relation between systemic racism and mental health. And, you know, sometimes we write the books we need. I feel like that was the Mm. case for me. Um, And one thing I hope we'll be able to talk about is just what's been happening in the 10 years or more since my book was published. Um, But before we get there, I want to go backwards and say that uh, 20 years ago, I just had a 20th anniversary panel. Oh, wow. I yeah, I published a book which is called An Archive of Feelings, mm-hmm. Trauma, Sexuality, and Lesbian Public Cultures. And that book came out of my interest in the category of trauma. Uh, so it's kind of a leap from or a move from trauma to depression, um, and different ways of understanding categories that have been understood in clinical terms and wanting to understand them in cultural or historical terms. Um, For the book on trauma, I was, um, and this is very timely for the moment that we're in right now, um, that I was, was really intrigued by the processes of cultural memory that were coming out of work around the Holocaust, but also Mm -hmm. feeling as someone living in the Americas that I wanted an expanded idea of historical trauma, one that would encompass um, colonialism, um, the history of slavery. uh, What what was the work of memory that needed to happen? Um, I was very influenced actually by Toni Morrison's work. I mean, that's one citation, the work that Toni Morrison did in Beloved to um, begin to think about the afterlife of slavery and the way Mm -hmm. that all of us, but obviously in different ways, depending on the bodies and cultures we walk in, are living with the legacies of colonial genocide, of slavery, of um, a really complicated set of 
histories and races that um, impact how we walk in the world, um, including for me as a white person, as a um, settler generation. How how does that feel in our bodies? Um, And uh, that question has just been so compelling for me across a range of times and places and ways of thinking. So in the Archive of Feelings book, I was thinking about the HIV AIDS crisis. I was thinking about um, efforts to think about diaspora and migration from queer vantage points. So what is it like Mm -hmm. to be queer and an immigrant, not just an immigrant? Um, How do we deal with questions of sexual violence and intimate violence? So what happens if, and I'm not the only person to do this, but um, if we think about trauma as not just about war and um, uh, public forms of violence, but intimate forms of violence, how do we connect all of that? Um, And what tools do we need? And how might it be that uh, the medical profession fails us? So even though I used... Um, a term that you can find in the clinical books, trauma mm. and depression for both books, was really with the critical sense of wanting to expand the frame so that it wasn't just the doctors who were the experts, yeah. but other folks. Um, that said, uh, it's interesting that you felt like you had a hard time finding literature that would put systemic racism and mental health together. I think we're still yeah. in a place where this is what's really exciting to talk to you. We're in a place where we need to all pull together to find the resources that we need and to make them. So I hope conversations like this would help to generate some of the thinking that we need in order to just look at how it is that um, racism, anti-Black racism, uh, the legacy of colonial genocide, the theft of native land, um, everyday encounters are making us sick. Racialized mm-hmm. capitalism is making us sick mm-hmm. at the level of our feelings. And you come from this academic background, but this book is so deeply personal. And I'm curious why you felt it was important to have your personal experience um, behalf of this book and how you decided on this sort of unique formatting for it. Yeah. Um, this is something that's also, I think, I'm glad to have experimented uh, with what it means to bring personal experience together with systemic analysis. Like in a way, it's like an, an analogy at the level of writing and form to this question we're rolling around about what is the relation between our everyday experiences and whatever analysis we have about what produces them. So in order to capture that, I felt like I wanted to be able to start with where I am. You know, some of it is also just basic um, feminist training around the personal is political, around being able to acknowledge our own grounding, our own subject positions, um, and then to move from there to um, an analysis where I was trying to assemble some tools around me that would help me understand my own experience. Um, And I think we're also in the 10 years or so since that book got published, I think we're seeing all kinds of creative modes of writing. In fact, Andre, your book also, I think, is an example of a book which is 
um, building from or drawing from uh, your own experience, but also analyzing it or, or pulling other tools in. And mm-hmm. I, what I was, it's really exciting for me to see <laughs> is that non-academics would read my academic work. Uh, <laughs> also that many writers, you see it in the genre of what's being called creative nonfiction. So folks like um, Claudia Rankine, um, Christina Sharp, who's actually an academic, but Ordinary Notes yeah. has been widely read. Saidia Hartman is being widely read. Fred mm-hmm. Moten is a poet scholar who's become more mm-hmm. widely known. Um, that that things are really opening up, and there's this traffic back and forth as we try to build these tools. And for me, one way to do that is to, yeah, to begin from my own experience as a way to potentially create bridges that would allow people to come into uh, my conceptual world, even if they mm-hmm. are not scholars. Mm-hmm. And I think just the validation of, of personal experience is so important, especially, especially for marginalized communities where um, those experiences have been seen sort of as invalid in compared Mm -hmm. to more academic work and um that sort of framing so i'm working on my first book and it's also like in that realm but i feel like um like we've been saying in the last 10 years there's been um so much more of this kind of discourse which is which is very exciting absolutely yeah yeah um, yeah, I'm excited that you that you felt like my book fit in the conversation. <laughs> like that yeah. that, that yeah, might be instructive for me after this conversation. Um, right, right. Well, you know, one other thing I want to add into the mix too is this. This speaks to where my work has gone um, uh, in the wake of the publication of the book because it feels like I I also am wanting to right in order to be in a conversation with others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not like everything is said and done inside of the book. I think this also has to do yeah. with my location as a white person. If I'm not in dialogue with people of color, I'm not, you know, the work is not happening. Um, and it's, you know, it has to be a, a multi-way street. Sometimes there are conversations we need to have separately from each other. Yeah. Sometimes we want to create places where we can connect so I'm glad to see the pool grow larger. I want to say that the insight that I referenced it earlier, but for me, the move from trauma, which is like big scale events, right? Big tragedies to depression, which is more like just a, you, I think in a pre-conversation, we're describing it as a weight, like something that's mm-hmm. pulling you down um, and that sometimes you can't quite get a handle on it. It's, it's hard to fix. You go to the doctor, do you, you know, consult spiritual manuals, do you Mm -hmm. exercise? It's all these things. And, uh, um, it is what I would call ordinary, uh, race, racism, for example, is ordinary. If you, uh, well, well, for me, one of the touchstones for this is, uh, is Claudia Rankine's book, um, um, it, it, her work on um, in citizen on mm-hmm. the ways in which uh, microaggressions actually that language of microaggression also I think was a big step forward I sometimes find it too a little bit clinical like I want the stories yeah. not category mm-hmm. but that um, I think we have a much better understanding along with being able to use terms like systemic racism more widely 
to also understand um, what's happening in the everyday. Uh, that I, just the more that idea builds and grows, the better. And I have also taken real inspiration from what I think is the feminist and queer attention in the movement for Black Lives on mm-hmm. feeling as part of activism. So mm-hmm. I just find so much kick-ass thinking from, you know, folks like um, Patrice Cullors, Alicia yeah. Garza, uh, you, we, you mentioned Adrian Marie Brown, um, mm-hmm. Prentice Hemphill, um, the work of Alexis Pauline Gums, this attention to the fact that activism also entails like, how do we work together as groups? How do we not get burnt out? How do yeah. we keep hope? You know, that's one of your keywords. Like, how do we yeah. keep hope alive? Yeah. And to me, that is part of the work that has I'm glad to see happening in and around this idea that uh, our everyday feelings do matter. And we need to start there with what's happening inside our bodies in order to build a movement that's going to um, keep us alive and yeah. push things forward. Yeah, that's reminding me of um, the first section of the book where you talk about where it's you talk about the language of depression, you know, and like you just mentioned, like the it, it is medical, it's it's clinical, and in fact, when I talk about depression, you know, in my music, which is where I'm singing about, you know, like this is what that weight uh, feels like in my life people automatically separate it from, you know, when I'm talking about racism in society. And I'm like, well, no, like these things are very much connected for me. Right. And um, I wondered if you might speak a little bit more to the language, because I found myself underlining feverishly in this section, because you talk about despair, you talk about political depression, you talk about boredom, you know, and I found the language of political depression especially useful, you know, to actually put that adjective in front of it so that people recognize that, you know, we're not going to get to the bottom of what's bothering me by talking about my relationship with my mother. My my relationship with my mother was great. <laughs> you know, um, it's it's. Um. It's 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 the laws. It's the electing of fascists. It's the microaggressions. It's all those things. So I wonder mm. if you could say a little bit more about what you're what you were wrestling with or playing around with um, mm-hmm. in actually defining what you mean when you say depression. Sure. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's interesting that. Um, the term doesn't really go away as much as I'm wanting to resist it and replace mm-hmm. it with other um, terms, maybe a more ordinary vernacular where it just be like, how are you feeling? You know, what are the words that come up for you or what are the experiences that are on your mind? Um, I appreciate what you're saying about the value of putting political in front of depression. And there yeah. I want to credit um, my 
gang in Chicago, a group called Field Tank um, that included mm-hmm. folks like Lauren Berlant, who recently passed, who is a major interlocutor for me. Um, Debbie Gould, who's written on um, political feelings in HIV uh, AIDS activism and other folks there. Um, this is work that does come out of collective conversations. Uh, yeah. Field Tank came up with this brilliant slogan, which was um, depressed. It might be political, which was another (laughs) um, framing uh, an approach to anything that traffics under the um, the term depression, which is given. Many of us use colloquially all the time. Um, So in that sense, I want to respect the vocabularies and languages that people want to use to describe how they're feeling. Um, but yeah, it's, it's in a nutshell, putting political in front of depression does allow us to, as you say, open up explanations that go beyond um, just our personal circles to think about ways in which the systems we live in are bringing us down. Um, I do want people to tell stories. I yeah. do want people to um, feel like they can have their own vocabulary. So one of the things I'll often do, I, li- I like to do writing workshops in and around the um, phenomenon of like our political moods. So I go into a room and just go around the circle and say, hey, how are you feeling today? <laughs> you know, one word. And as a group, we generate kind of like what's the mood in the room? And often whatever, whatever language people use, it's always going to be revealing. Uh, Although maybe sometimes entail like telling the story that lies behind the word, like, oh, you're feeling uh, fatigued today. Like what, what, what's that about? What happened? What's going on? Mm. Um, So getting to share those stories, I think can be a way that we um, build capacity and also keep with that that emphasis on the personal, right? If the problem is personal, then the solution is also personal. That is finding ways that we can begin from where we are um, and share with each other um, a set of vocabularies, stories, uh, explanations for how we're feeling and to do that in collectivity, then I think we have um, a, a collective tool, a accessible tool for being able to build the structures we need without necessarily having to rely on the so-called experts, the doctors, mm. or mm. also to invoke the title of your podcast, um, the, the the pills, um, mm-hmm. rather than the hope. <laughs> <laughs> Although I love that you have both there, right? I've, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this notion of the hard pill, hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that idea because I think in our healthcare systems, the lack of accessibility, even the lack of... Um, accessibility to the language is such a a barrier and I feel like we're seeing the like sort of like therapy speak and um these like mental health concepts be actually weaponized against marginalized communities really often um and, and back to sort of this political depression idea I um 
every week for my therapy to, for my, um, for my insurance to pay for it, I have to take a quiz. And my therapist is like, Oh, your, your numbers are like down. Like, am I not doing my job? And I was just like, well, you know, there's just thousands of people constantly dying right now. <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling great. That's, that's a natural human response. So I love this idea of sort of um, using community as a mental health resource, resource without um, needing sort of the, the experts. I'm wondering within the mental health and healthcare structures we have right now, um, what are some of the, the first things that, in your opinion, need to change in order to um, address the actual structural issues behind our political depression? Big question. And, it, you know, part of it is it requires many different hands and many different kinds of expertise. So it's interesting that you mention your own experiences with therapy. Um, and I, too, have various kinds of uh, therapy I use, although some of them are less professionalized and more alternative. But I do want to see the you know more resource um, given to the mental health system. I want to see, um, again, more of a fusion of mental health and um, understandings of systemic oppression so that we aren't just trying to, again, build a model of inclusion, but we're also changing what it means to treat um, yeah. mental health and thinking imaginatively about that. Um, and And again, understanding the collective and community resources that may already be there if people can have access to each other. Uh, this is where, because I'm not a medical health professional, I mm. can kind of speak more generally or speculatively about what might be. But one of the places that I've been particularly excited is when I see a robust analysis of racism um, in connection with discussions of feeling mental health trauma. So for example, something like Resman Menicum's My Grandmother's Hands, um, the work that Angel Kyoto Williams is doing to think about um, mindfulness practice or um, embodied practice and social transformation. I just took a really amazing online course for six months that was um, on em embodied social transformation that um, was run by or led by Angel Kyoto Williams and an amazing team of teachers. And I think that is really suggestive um, for ways of thinking about um, bodily transformation and mental health that also keep in mind that broader systemic view. It may not look like conventional therapy, but it also has a lot of place for felt experience and for different ways of tuning in or checking in to how we are feeling um, as one important component of being able to do any kind of work in the world. Um, in the book you mentioned, you talk a bit about creativity and spiritual practice and in some ways, the lines are kind of blurry between the two. 
um, in the way that you write about it. And I, I wouldn't, I think maybe saying a solution to depression would be too strong of language to say that it's presented in that way, but it, it's in the conversation there. And I thought that was really interesting as a creative um, and the personal experiences I have with how, you know, making music for myself, not even just in completing a song, but just the act of the creation in itself. Um, it, it's helpful to me. And so I wondered if you could talk a bit about the connection that you see there between creativity, spiritual practice, and how that is interacting with political depression. And um, there was something else I wanted to ask you about that, but I can't remember. But I, I think that's fine to start there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you've laid out an interesting map there insofar as like bringing any two of those things together, mm. um, health, creativity or, you know, art practice, spiritual practice involves sometimes some leaps, like sometimes those are worlds that don't always speak to one another. So, mm. for example, in academia where I live or even in some of my art worlds, there is sometimes... Um, if not a suspicion of spiritual practice, then just a, a kind of silence there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a real push for me. And it's something that has continued to evolve since the publication of Depression of Public Feeling um, to, to really bring spiritual practice robustly into the picture, just to keep asking, like, well, what is that? <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, what uh, I, I get this a lot through working on on mindfulness or breath practice which sometimes can be done in a very secular way like we're just thinking mm-hmm. about what's going on in our bodies when we breathe in breathe out but mm-hmm. also how might that um our understanding of our relation to breath be enhanced by thinking about spirit where spirit or inspiration even though the word itself um, derives from understandings of wind or wind or breath or air moving through us. So what if we do think about creativity and art as um, fundamentally aligned with what has sometimes um, fallen under the rubric of spiritual practice, ways of bringing people together, ways of connecting with something beyond ourselves? All of that has become very um much more, even more compelling to me to explore, but it does often feel like I'm pulling things together that are sometimes kept apart. Um, mm-hmm. And similarly to link up creative practice and uh, responses to mental health. On the one hand, it seems totally like, like, why is that so complicated? Like, of course, mm-hmm. it things feel better to access our creative um, spirit or process. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's also the case that the artists and the doctors are sometimes also kept apart from one another. They're not seen as kind of, um, sharing expertise. So the more that we blend these things together, sometimes along fuzzy lines, the better, Um, And there I will also say that other cultural traditions besides my own, although actually I grew up Catholic and that's that's Mm -hmm. been a a real grounding for me is um, practices of Catholicism that predate capitalism or in the Americas that are syncretically tied Mm -hmm. to traditions where there's an understanding that all things are interconnected or that Mm. 
seemingly inanimate or non-human things also have a kind of aliveness to them and that they're, you know, lighting a candle or moving things around or yeah. uh, creating an altar is a way to ground and to access um, traditions and life beings uh, that are outside of us. And so this is where a facility with each other's cultures is very important. So for me, it has been extremely important to understand African diaspora cultures and the way in which different um, practices of spirit um, that can be found in music, that can be found in movement, have been a mechanism whereby a people has um, survived and made something. And um, that is a, a knowledge that um, is important to me also as a white person. I think in the Americas, mm -hmm. we have to know each other. This is yeah. one reason why I think critical race theory is being outlawed because <laughs> people know mm. this knowledge is one that we were, uh, you know, having some critical mass in being able to share and it's potent and it's seen as dangerous and some people want mm. to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder what, how you would answer what's at stake in making this connection between feelings or political feelings. I guess that is the, I guess that is the intersection once you say mm -hmm. political feelings. So, but what's at stake in us accessing or bringing these worlds together of politics and personal affect? I mean, my first thought is everything's at stake. <laughs> you know, our, our, I, I see it as um, a really helpful, Full process just for getting through day to day, but also I think fundamentally for finding ways to make connections with each other. I, I do think uh, there's just, I think been some new, there's, there's new attention in public health to loneliness. I feel like loneliness mm -hmm. is the new vocabulary of depression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I actually like that because loneliness is not a medical term, right? It's, it's, it is a, more of a just everyday term, but yeah. in fact, loneliness and depression are fundamentally linked. So to the extent that we're understanding loneliness to be an epidemic, anything we can do to feel connected to each other, whether that be one other person or a connection through a book or listening to a podcast or ideally being in larger groups of people. And I'm also, although I favor uh, live and in-person connections, I do think that um, that we can use technology and social media to also create different kinds of collectivity. So it's really like connection, connection, connection. And mm -hmm. if we can figure out what that looks like, I think we have the foundation for the big challenges that are also, you know, really on our plate and which I, I don't at all want to underestimate, mm -hmm. but we have to start from that, from that micro dynamic of how do I connect with myself with other people um, and with the world around me. I find this, I find this conversation fascinating just the, since hearing even just about the public feelings project, I just found, found that really fascinating. I'm curious about how this conversation has developed since the publishing of the book. 
For purposes of our conversation here, and because I know this is something that I think you've been tracking in this podcast, um, you know, I think this this period of movement for Black Lives, um, you know, starting in 2013-14 with a, attention to um, the deaths of folks like Trayvon Martin up through George Floyd and the beyond the way in which attention has been drawn to the killing force of race in our time, mm-hmm. um, that civil rights, that um, other kinds of political change have not brought an end to racism. Um, and moreover, that in addition to these really obvious forms of uh, violence, uh, we're also dealing with institutions that have not moved forward. I work in the academy. I've mm-hmm. seen change. I've seen I've seen real change, and I've also seen how much more there is to do. Yeah. So the work is very clear. The the pandemic and the the we're in an intense moment of backlash now. I think that there was this this momentum that felt like it was going to break open in a yeah. certain way in 2020 with the combination of the pandemic and then the uprisings and um, and public discussions around race. And now I feel like we're in a huge backlash moment that requires Absolutely. that we be even more vigilant. Um, and we're also the the dangers of hopelessness become even more severe, right? Like how, how do we sustain ourselves when we also see the persistence of violence, when we see the virulence of the efforts to take away affirmative action, take away critical race theory? Uh, it's, it's, it's serious, serious times mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the tools are in a sense the same but seeing how they manifest in the world is something that I'm watching with great interest um, and also just seeking to find sustenance in conversations like this one, right? That suggests that people are finding each other in yeah. some interesting and different ways that are meaningful. Yeah. So that kind of segues into our last question which you kind of have answered a little bit but we like to end with the question of what keeps you going um yeah well i'll just pick up where where i um left off and just say conversation (laughs) is one of the things that keeps me going yeah absolutely (laughs) it's easy to like spin out in your head and uh i do love to um not only talk things over, but like feel things over. So uh, something about that is uh, very simple, but also very sustaining for me. Um, And getting to keep learning across, um, across different zones of inquiry too uh, is, is, is really valuable. Um, just watching because I'm aging now. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, let's say, um, 30 years of change or 50 years of change that I've been able to see in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I kind of want to be there for how it's going to happen. (laughs) going badly it's like wow this is a really 
uh, interesting experiment um, that, yeah. that we have embarked on. And there have been a lot of surprises, some really bad surprises. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just got to keep like reaching for the way in which um, I want to just, you know, wake up for the next uh the next the next piece of it um mm-hmm. in the interest also of trying to hand off um to another generation um the work that needs to happen so i think that's another thing that's another thing about connection right is connection across generations so reaching back um and then as a teacher seeking to reach forward uh so i get also very excited when i see that the work that I've um, produced might mean something to someone else or the teaching of, you know, folks who are now household names, Octavia Butler, Audre Lorde, James Baldwin, because I come out of a literary background. The fact that like the, the poets and the essayists are, are being invoked as part of a social movement also gives me hope that, um, producing conversation is life-changing and socially transformative well and thank you so much for being um on the show thank you so much for this conversation it's been wonderful meeting you and hearing more about your work um again everyone listening the book is depression a public feeling make sure that you check it out and as always no matter where you are and what's happening right now i want you all to remember A new world is possible. It does not have to be this way because we're tomorrow makers and you'll hear from us next time. Bye. Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trish's is at Trish's music. That's spelled T-R-I-S-H-E-S music on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Andre is at the Andre Henry on Instagram and TikTok and at Andre Henry on Twitter. Catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on Spotify. If you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of Andre and Trisha's conversation, you can join the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.